It is an odd time in the life of the Metters household these days. When I say it's an odd time, we are very, very aware that I now have in my house one who has graduated from high school and I am under one year from both of them graduating from high school. That's quite a transition. Some of you who have been through this before, I may need you to speak into my world, all right? Uh, prepare me for, for how this works because I'm going to tell you, having kids 14 months apart is an incredible blessing and it has been a ton of fun, don't get me wrong. But I knew as we were getting older, there would be those transitions and those milestones that we would pass. We would go out of elementary school within a year, you know, within say 366 days, I guess. We would completely leave elementary school. We would do the same thing going into middle school. I knew that my kids would be driving 14 months apart from each other. I also knew in my head that they would be graduating high school within a year of each other. And knowing that is much different than actually experiencing it, amen? Now you can think about things a lot, but it's different when you actually get there. And so there's been this, this kind of a pressure, if you will. I remember the same pressure feeling, anyway, about the time that I felt called into ministry. It's interesting how there's been some similarities in, in, in heart and mind from when I was called into ministry years ago and in these segments of time. And it's because of a very similar reality that my time is very finite, that there's not much distance left to go in this race of raising my kids through high school. And I get it. Some of you who have <clears throat> kids who are grown adults, you're somewhat smiling, maybe even chuckling to yourself and saying, hey, preacher, don't think you get off the hook when they graduate high school. My kids are 57 and I'm still telling them what they need to be doing. I get it. All right. Like I know, but you also have to acknowledge things change, right? It's different. Things feel different. People operate differently. Your kids growing up and maturing, it changes things a great deal. And so in a very similar way, when I felt called into ministry, I remember not necessarily that I needed to, from a parental standpoint, but I remembered knowing that soon I would be going into school, that I would be going into ministry. And in my mind and heart at the age of 15, I started having in my mindset that I was probably going to wave goodbye to my parents somewhere after my senior year, and I may not see them very much after that. That was just kind of this awareness of mine, I guess. And so I remember thinking, like, I need to dive more into and spend more time with, like, my brother specifically. We did a ton of stuff those last two years. And in a similar way, I find myself realizing, like, my kids graduating high school, there is this pressure that... You know, is there anything I didn't tell them? You ever had that thought? Is there anything I need to speak to them? Is there any like, last words you know, that I need to give them before they become adults? I've looked at things uh, even in a, in a preparatory standpoint of this, of like what sorts of things might you say to someone? I mean, what sorts of things might you give them as guidance and direction? And again, it's not that you know, now that my son has graduated, my daughter's about a year away from graduation, it doesn't mean that my influence or my ability to speak, but there's something about that big transition that makes me think, what are the last things I need to tell them before they graduate high school, before they become adults? You know, our text this morning is very, very similar to that. I've wondered before when you're thinking about or, or kind of dealing with that sense of urgency, I've wondered before, did Jesus spend much time thinking about what is the last thing that I'm going to say to my disciples before I go up into heaven? 
You know, like not before uh, death and resurrection, but before the ascension, as we call it. Like, I wonder sometimes if he didn't mull around in his mind, what things would be the, the most important thing for me to give guidance about? Well, most important thing for me to say, like, you need to make sure of this or you need to check on this. I mean, I wonder at what level did Jesus kind of navigate? What thing do I need to say to them to make sure this sticks with them? And I find it interesting that in Matthew 28, go ahead and turn there. In Matthew 28, we find the things that Jesus decided, this is the last thing I need to see. Now, I want to make sure I clarify a couple of things from a theological standpoint. Do we believe that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that the work of God on this earth was over? Good answer. No, we do not. Right? We know that at that point, Jesus told them, I'm going to send a helper. We're going to be one who comes behind me, the, the one who will help you. And what do we call that helper in today's language? Two words, Holy Spirit, there you go. So like, we knew there that God, God continued, but you also have to recognize there is a difference between looking at Jesus in human form in front of you and trusting the Holy Spirit, amen? Now, I say amen only because I know what the difference is looking at someone and then thinking about their presence being there. And in some ways, I try to assimilate that into, I can just imagine how much more influential it is to be looking at Jesus in the eyes. You know, like, that's a different scenario than allowing the Holy Spirit, which they were going to have to start navigating. How do you trust the Holy Spirit? Like, how do you know and, and learn from the Holy Spirit? And how do you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you? Those were all lessons to be learned. So in this statement, it's not that God's presence was going to leave, but these are the words that Jesus felt it necessary to say like, this is the last thing I will leave them with. It is the lectionary text for the morning. I think it's appropriate for us. We stand as a sign of the respect of the reading of the word. So I'd invite you to stand this morning. We'll be in Matthew 28. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. We'll go through verse 20. There will be other passages that we reference, but for this morning's purposes, this will be the one that drives and is the dominant uh, uh, thought process driving us for the morning. It says in Matthew 28, verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely... I am with you. God, we come before you this morning with a bit of, God, not to separate scriptures, but to show special emphasis on the last words that Jesus gave disciples before ascending. And so as we do so, God, help us to see the, the necessity of these words. Help us to see the urgency in these words. Help us to see the formational quality of these words. We love you for this opportunity. We thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that you would speak to us through this. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. One of the things I'll leave this passage up on the screen, because here in a few moments we'll be looking at a different one, and I'll leave those up for you to allow your mind as we talk, your mind to be able to stay within this text, right? Give you a chance to continue to look and allow your mind to both listen to the words that are being delivered as you're also imagining these disciples as they're experiencing this. And that's one of the things I think it's necessary before we ever talk about Jesus' words and the last things that he says. Do you notice something in this text that seems a bit odd to you? Is there anything in this text before Jesus even starts speaking that is a bit surprising to you? What in this about, now let's make sure, then the 11, 12 minus Judas, okay? Put this in the correct, uh, in the correct order and in your mind. Get this in the, in the right order here. Minus Judas, the 11 disciples went to the mountain 
What do you read in those first couple of verses that just seems a bit surprising even still? Anything jump out at you? It's a bit, isn't it a bit odd that even after all of this, they're arriving? I mean, folks, put yourself in this, in this place. They have witnessed all of the things that have taken place. They have witnessed all of the miracles. They have seen Jesus go through the, the passion, the cross. They've seen the resurrection. He has appeared to them in an upper room when the doors were locked. They are those who have said, I won't believe until I see the scars in His hands or put my, my hand where His side. They have experienced that. He is transfigured in front of them. There have been all of these things that are taking place. And folks, I need you to know when you read this passage, it's been something that we've, we've allowed to come up a few times over the last few weeks and months as we've preached. When they get to this mountain, it shows they're still following Jesus' direction, right? I mean, they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. They're still following Jesus. They're still expectant to see what He's going to do. They're still curious about these things. They're still faithful, I would argue. And yet, as they arrive in this place, they're still struggling with the nature of who Jesus Christ is. They're struggling with even the things that they've seen. So I want to I want to humanize the disciples for a little bit and also humanize those saints, as you've heard me say before. Working through your doubts is a part of the faith. Amen? If there was nothing to doubt, then it's not faith. If there's not something to work through, to struggle with, to, to think about, it, I don't know how all this works and I can't get my mind wrapped around it. I'm not even sure about it. Can you imagine how much more it's magnified in today's world when we didn't get to walk around with Jesus? <clears throat> I mean, think with me for just a second. All the things that they've experienced, and yet still they find themselves in a place where some of them are dealing with doubt. Something else I need you to see this morning, and not, not to allow yourself to allow your minds to go down the road of, of destruction, all right? What are they doing while they are doubting? When they saw Him, they, it's okay to sit here on a Sunday morning and not have everything figured out. It's okay to sing praises to a God that you don't have completely figured out and for you to be struggling with or thinking through or I don't know how to process this or make sense of this. Understand this is a part of faith. It's working through it. It is struggling through some of these things. And I need you to hear this morning that you, you may never completely figure things out, though you may be at complete peace with God. Anybody recognize, understand what I'm talking about? I may not figure it all out, but I'm at peace with who He is. I'm at peace not knowing everything that He is. I'm going to tell you this morning, there are things sometimes that I still can't get my mind completely wrapped around, and I'm really kind of glad of it. You want to know why? Because if I could get my mind wrapped around it, guess who God is? Me. Understand? Like, if I can figure Him out, then I can control Him. And if I can control Him, He's not God. It's just how it works. You know, God is not your toy to be triggered. You know what I mean? Your toy to be... be torqued into doing something. I mean, there should be natures of this that we still struggle with. This is a part of, of, of working through it. And it doesn't mean that we don't have the things that we struggle with. It means that we can make peace with those things and still worship God recognizing who He is even though we're working through some of those things. So I need you to see even the disciples in this. Now I also want to point out in the story, if you go to Mark chapter 16, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'll put it on the screen in front of you. I want you to see that when Mark talks about these occurrences and these things taking place, he talks about like what they're doing and them having spoken and exactly how they respond. And the thing that Mark says is that after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was taken up into heaven and He sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and, was con and confirmed His words. And I didn't include the rest of that when I copy and paste it apparently. 
when you look back at those, at those passages and you see what's going on, even though they were working through their doubts, they're still following. They're still in that process of working through those things. And that's something that I need you to hear this morning. Continue to work through even though sometimes you struggle. Now we finally get to the place where it says, or where I ask the question, what did Jesus last tell the disciples? What was so important? It was the last thing he said to him. I'll go back in the slide so you can pull this back up. One of the first things is declaring all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And yet, after making that kind of declarative statement, he finally gives a bit of direction, a bit of guidance. And he says something very specific. I, I love those first two words. And if you're in some other translations, therefore may not even exist in your translation because some of the, the first things that he's saying to them is this word of, of go. Like go and do. Have you ever noticed how many times Jesus speaks to action? How many times He speaks to doing something? Like being in, in, in movement, being in, in action, and, and actually like accomplishing and, and working toward. And, and I see this morning, I, I look at our Vacation Bible School workers and I think, what a beautiful picture of what it means to go. Amen? I mean, I understand it's four days. Yes, okay. Like we're not talking about this. Is not VBS is not a lifetime assignment. But for the, the four days of coming here, like this is a part of what it means to go. You look back in the Bible when Jesus interacts with people. What are some of the things that Jesus says to people that involve action? Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Go and sin no more. I mean, there. Go and show yourselves to, to those religious leaders to show that you have been cleansed. You know what I mean. There are actions involved in these things. And there's one of the things that, that you need to recognize. Like Jesus has spent, as we, as we look back at the story, He spent three years teaching them how to do these things. He spent three years living it out in front of them. Ultimately getting to this culminating event where He's saying, you've watched what I have done. You have listened to Me speak. You have been taking in for so long, you have been being fed into and being, been, been invested into, and now it's time. You've watched it, you've seen it, you've heard it, you've been taught it. And now it's time for you to go, to be in action, to be doing things. I, I sat with a theology student several years ago. I believe he's still working on his doctoral program. I remember sitting in a conversation and he was in the midst of research and enjoying some of the uh, theology conversations. I recognize that some of us enjoy good theology discussions. Some of us take it or leave it, not that big of a deal. But this individual, we're having a conversation about theology and he started making some statements that were very, um, you know those statements that people say trying to get, they're just trying to poke the bear. Is that a good analogy? You know what I mean? Like they're just trying to get a rise or saying, and I remember when he started saying some of those kind of theological things that made you know, kind of trying to get a rise or trying to get a jump. I said, man, I, I hear you, but I'm just curious, like, how does this actually happen? You know what I mean? Like, some of these statements that you're making and the things that you're learning about God, like, how does that look like on a practical level and how does that, how does that affect us? And I'll never forget the young man's conversation. I'll never forget his response. He said, well, I don't really care about praxis. I just love theology. You love idolatry. That's what that is. Theology without praxis is idolatry. Theology for the sake of theology is worthless. You know, if theology doesn't inform how we know our God so that how we can serve Him, what is the purpose of having these conversations? Like, I realized in that conversation with this young man very, very early on, like, I don't care to sit here and keep talking to you. Like, if we're not going to talk about how what we learn about God matters and how it changes who we are and how we live in this life, it doesn't inform our knowledge of who God is in such a way to bring about some, some action and some practice from this. And like, there's no point in having this conversation. It, it, makes, it makes it worthless. You see... 
we're a group of people that like, we've, we enjoy some things that sound very, very pretty. I, I sat in a conversation not long ago and someone brought up an old quote. I'm curious to hear if any of you have remembered or remember who said these words some years ago. If I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend four sharpening the axe. Have you ever heard that? I had six hours to cut down a tree. I'd spend four sharpening the axe. Anybody guess who that was? I'll give you a hint. It was a president. I'll also give you a hint. Not many presidents that you've known in your lifetime have actually cut a tree down with an axe. So that should put it further back into time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other conversation and some fun to be had. I'll give you a hint. His initials are Abraham Lincoln. There you go. All right, so Abraham Lincoln said this phrase, if I had six hours to cut down a tree, I'd spend four sharpening the axe. And a theologian took those words and he said, you know, this is how this applies so beautifully into the art of being a preacher. And he was writing this book. I'm not even going to give you the name of the book because 98% of it's really, really good. But this one thing, we, we were in a conversation, kind of a book study, a conversation about it with a group of pastors. And, and as we have the discussion, the, the guys say, you know, this is exactly right. This is exactly how we should do. We should apply this same principle to being pastors. When it comes to preaching, if we're going to preach a sermon, because this, this person who was writing talks about, if I had five years to preach, I'd spend, or if I had six years to preach, we'll stay within the Abraham Lincoln. If I had six years to preach, I'd spend four years studying. I don't understand how that applies. So I asked the question, I said, how does that apply to a preacher today? I'm pastoring at Erin Church of the Nazarene, okay? So like now that I'm pastoring, so how does that apply to me? Crickets. You know what I mean? Like absolute crickets. Because you know what? Apply this to your own job, all right? You're working at a job right now, and you're trying to apply this principle of if I had six hours to do whatever your job is, then I would spend four working to be better and learning how to do the job. I hear you, Chad, if you stop working at TVA, if all the TVA employees say, we're just going to stop and we're going to spend the next four years figuring out how to do electricity better, what are we going to do for the next four years? Be very hot right now. It's a very good answer. That's exactly right. Be very cold this winter. That's, it. That's how this works. You know? So like, there's a part of this, I said, like, that doesn't, how, how does that work? And I get crickets. And someone says, well, like, well, you know, what, what, is the, what are you driving at? And I said, what I'm driving at is we like to say things that are very pretty. But we don't oftentimes like to say things that, that, that matter. We have fallen in love with pretty things. We fall in love with stuff that sounds really, really good. But we've not exactly fallen in love with things that have substance to them. I mean, think with me for just a moment. Some of you may have driven past, and for the first time since we've had a church sign, I put something I thought was more thought-provoking than just announcements of events that are coming up. And there's a few slides out there that are scrolling through our church sign. That's the things that Jesus never said. We've got people in the world today that love phrases like this. Be true to yourself. Just be a good person. Put yourself first as long as you're happy. Like, are you kidding me? Like, those aren't even close to the things that Jesus says. You want to, Jesus says things more like, if any man should come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. But see, we're so in love with things that sound pretty in the short term, like as long as you're happy. I remember not long ago, there was a country music artist by the name of Luke Bryan who came out with a song. Uh, I can't remember the name of the song now, but I, I love his phrase. It is, I believe you love who you love ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. Doesn't that sound nice? Until someone decides to love your children, a grown man loving your children, or a grown man decides to love your wife. You know, like, they sound pretty, but they don't work. You understand what? These are things that, that don't, we have fallen in love with these catchphrases and buzzwords. It's like we fall in love with the, we fall in love with the thought process of things. It's, it's why in the 
And the government easily argued we have a cacostocracy of sorts. We don't have, we have people who are in love with the things that are to be said as opposed to loving and doing, actually being involved in the doing. We have people who have fallen in love with saying pretty things or saying things that sound good. Folks, this morning, as we look at this passage, you need to know we are called to be useful for God. We're called to be in action for God. And quite frankly, as I make it a bit of a joke about the nature of the, the way we see our governmental agencies work, I would also make the case that we do that within the church. Sometimes within the church, there's too many people that are about as useful as G and lasagna. Stick with it for a minute. You'll catch it. About as useful as a G and lasagna. Think of how it's spelled. There you go. Some of you are like, oh, I get you. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Because there's only... There's only pretty things to be said and not action following, not, not the going part of going and doing. I, I hear you. When, when we think about what it means to spend four hours preparing for, uh, of the six hours to cut down a tree, I, I, I'm not saying this morning that we totally neglect preparation. I'm not saying that we neglect sharpening and being better. Folks, I, I worked for five years. I supported my family off of cutting trees for a living. I don't borrow chainsaws from people. You know why? Because I sharpen a chainsaw a certain way. I like the way I sharpen it. I like the chainsaws when I use them. So I'll tell you what, when I show up at somebody's house or someone says, hey, do you mind helping me cut something? I don't use other people's saws. You know why? Because I want something that's razor sharp. I get the purpose of needing to sharpen, but I need to call us as the church past a place or at least through the place where we continually sit in churches to be sharpened, and we do not go back out into this world to execute the go. Folks, we need to be people executing what it means to go back into this world, to be of action. We need to know what it means to be recommissioned, to make disciples, to make followers of Christ, to make people who act like Jesus, to work toward helping people be different in an environment that they live in or than in the environment they live in, calling them out of the foolishness of this world. My wife and I went on a couple of runs early in the morning over the last week. She's out of school now. She teaches. Uh, and so the opportunity for us to be able to spend some time on, uh, on, a, on a road, back road, early, early in the morning, uh, because let's just face it, uh, we're getting to that time of year where it's not much fun to be outside after 8 a.m. Amen? We're heading into those months. You know what I mean? So we ran early in the morning a couple of times this past week. And, and when we did, I want to show you something that I ran across. As a matter of fact, when I ran over it, I grabbed my phone out of my pocket. I don't run with many things in my pocket, but I normally like to keep up with how many miles and what's my pace and those sorts of things. And, and so as I, as I ran past this thing, I want to show you a picture on the screen here. I know if you're listening on the radio this morning, just bear with me for about 30 or 45 minutes. At first glance, you may not see anything in this picture, but if you look in the dead center, there's something that looks a little bit out of place. A little bit closer, you look again, there's this weird line sitting in the asphalt, and I thought when I got a little bit closer to it, oh look, there's a bolt, I'll pick that up and get it out of the road. That's one of those like heavy grade bolts, by the way. You can tell by the coloration of it. The thing's been heat treated and uh, is one that's made for holding on to things. Well, here's the problem. That's what the bolt looks like in the tar and gravel. I kicked it a couple of times. Of course, Stephanie didn't stop. She just keeps moving, so I only kicked it twice. So I had to catch back up with her, all right? But I remember when I saw this bolt, I thought, oh my, this bolt's function will never be accomplished because it has now become nothing more than another hard spot in the road. It, it has taken on and has become a part of what it fell into. Folks, when you go into this world, one of the temptations is to blend in so much that you become a part of the environment that you're in. 
that you so assimilate into it that you're nothing more than another hard spot in the road. And when Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, it is not to go and become another hard spot in the road, but to be the example of Christ calling people up out of that which has held them. To, to bring people. That is our call this morning. It is to go and work diligently to make disciples. It is to, to, to baptize, to train, to teach. It's one of the reasons this morning that you know here in Church of the Nazarene, we push people heavily, be involved in each other's lives in a way that is much more than just seeing each other on a Sunday morning because let's just be very honest with ourselves and with each other. Discipleship doesn't happen in large group settings as well as it does in small group settings. You want to know why the disciples traveled around together, why there's a group of 12, why Jesus pulled in even inside that an inner circle? Because you know what? You can't invest in 200 people at one time. You can't invest in 300 people at one time. But you want to know what discipleship looks like? It looks like small groups. You want to know why Pastor Jeremy recruits small group leaders 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? Because discipleship happens that way. That's how discipleship happens. It is getting involved in people's lives and knowing what they're going through and walking through those steps with them, helping them know how to take those next steps, praying for them as they go through those next steps. There are Sunday school groups within our church right now who have been a, a part of walking through very difficult roads together and they keep up with each other, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. You'll see them in their text threads or within their uh, apps that they may communicate with. They're keeping up with each other. And let me tell you, folks, if you're going to go and make disciples, you need to make peace with, with forming or having a group of people that you are working to disciple. I think it's a great question to be asked. Who are you actively discipling right now? Who are you actively discipling? Not who do you think about discipling, not who do you want to be discipling, but are you... Are you actively discipling someone else or a small group of people? Are you, are you connected in such a way that you are, this is a beautiful thing about small groups sometimes, that you're both being fed into while you are feeding and while you are giving. There, there's a reciprocity in that that's, that's beautiful. But it's still a solid question to ask. The last thing that Jesus asked us to do was to go and make disciples. So who are you discipling? What people are you speaking to on a consistent basis about who they are and what God's doing in their lives and and how you're praying with each other. This is the call of what... Folks, when Jesus decided, I'm going to leave this earth and, and go back into heaven, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit later, but, but I'm leaving this segment of time, when He decided the last things that He wanted to say to His people, it was telling Him to go and make disciples. I mean, that should give us just how important this is. Amen? That's how important it is that we begin to feed into other people. That we no longer sit in buildings and defined our, rela our relationship with Christ, we relegate it to a Sunday morning where we sit here, but we recognize that this is a, this is a life existence that we're called to, to go back into this world, not to so go back into this world we just become another hard spot in the world, but that we maintain our Christ-like identity as we are calling other people into that same way of life, that same way of living. I think it's important this morning as we wrap up our time together that you see something that's a bit fun. We'll, we'll close with a bit of a fun part of the story because it continues on as you follow in the book of Acts. The, the story kind of continues after the, the ascension and, and those sorts of things. And this is the story that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 1. Because after Jesus, you know, Jesus had given these words as we read in Matthew and then in Luke, Luke is who we believe wrote Acts, uh, in this story, we've got where, where Jesus has ascended, and it says that they were standing around looking intently up into the skies he was going. 
when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I love this picture because it reinforces exactly what Jesus told them in the, in the moments preceding. Why are you still standing here? Hello, this is Pastor Daniel Metters again. I hope this morning's message has both challenged your heart or maybe given you a word of encouragement. If you feel like you would like to reach out and maybe continue this conversation in any way, please feel free to email us at ecnradioresponse at gmail.com. We hope you are well and God bless.